The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Chief Justice John Roberts went back in history to the Aaronburg treason trials in 1807 and Chief Justice John Marshall's seminal rulings to find precedent for his majority opinion in Trump v. Vance, the case authorizing the Manhattan District Attorney to subpoena President it Trump's financial nice. records. It must be nice. To have Washington on your side, it must be nice, it must be nice to have Washington on your side. In an essay entitled, It Must Be Nice to Have Marshall on Your Side, a riff from a song from the Broadway hit Hamilton, constitutional law professor Josh Blackman writes that the chief glossed over some important facts in the standoff between President Thomas Jefferson and Chief Justice John Marshall over letters Jefferson had that Aaron Burr wanted for trial. So did Marshall really win the standoff over the documents, or did Jefferson? Josh Blackman joins me now. He's a professor at the South Texas College of Law. Josh, explain why Chief Justice John Marshall still looms so large at the Supreme Court. John Marshall was the first great Chief Justice, and he set many of the court's most important precedents. In Marbury v. Madison, he expanded the power of the court to declare laws unconstitutional. In Gibbons v. Ogden, he defined the meaning of commerce. In McCulloch v. Maryland, he defined what are Congress's, what are called necessary and proper powers. In all these cases, Marshall set the first precedent. Mm -hmm. And to this day, the court looks back at him as the sort of oracle of American constitutional law. So if you read Chief Justice John Roberts' majority opinion, he refers to Marshall's rulings from Aaron Burr's treason trial. For what general propositions is he referring to them? During the Aaron Burr treason trial, Burr, the former vice president who most famously killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, Burr sought certain documents from President Jefferson. He thought those documents would help his defense. Jefferson didn't want to turn them over. So Marshall issued a subpoena. There's a request from a court to produce a document. And Chief Justice Roberts saw the subpoena issued to Jefferson as the basis for the tax return cases. In other words, if Jefferson was subject to a subpoena, then Trump's tax returns could also be requested. And Jefferson asserted the now famous, the president has immunity from subpoenas argument. Right. Trump argued that he was absolutely immune from a subpoena, that these documents cannot be requested at all. And the court looked to the Aaron Burr trial as evidence to the contrary, that the president can be subject to the judicial process. You're right that in Roberts' decision, he didn't mention a few things or he glossed over them. He didn't mention that in the beginning of the dispute, Jefferson agreed to provide the documents voluntarily. Explain why that's important. You know, many people last week were watching on Disney Plus the Hamilton musical, which presents a beautiful story that's mostly historically accurate. It's somewhat sanitized to gloss over some rough spots in history from Hamilton, Washington, Jefferson, and others. I view John Roberts's rendition of the facts as similar to the Hamilton musical. It tells a great story with a happy ending that skips all the bumpy parts. 
as it turns out, Jefferson ignored Marshall's subpoena. He didn't follow it. He said, I will voluntarily provide a redacted copy of the document. That is a copy of the document that had parts crossed out that he found confidential. Marshall demanded that Jefferson come to the court in person. Jefferson said, screw that. He didn't send anyone in his place. He never provided the documents requested as they were requested. So if you look at this history in this battle between Jefferson and Marshall, I think Jefferson won. I think Marshall looks dumb in hindsight. He sort of issued this order that was ignored. But in the court's rendition of facts, Marshall is the king. He could do no wrong. I mean, I think it's a mistake with so much weight in a precedent in which the court was basically ignored. At Burr's second trial, he received a copy of the October letter that he wanted, and he wanted the original. Did he ever get the original? No, he never got it. And let me just make this point clearly. Burr was on trial for apparently, the facts are murky, but Jefferson alleged that Burr was trying to take over part of the Western United States. It's a very bizarre plot. One of the pieces of evidence was a letter that this general wrote to Jefferson, General Wilkinson. And this letter alleged that Burr was basically a foreign agent. Now, the irony is that Wilkinson was a spy. He was actually paid by the Spanish. He was setting up Burr. So the entire case was bunk. That's not really relevant. Burr wanted the original copy of the Wilkinson letter. Now, why original? Well, there were no photocopy machines back then, right? There were people copying documents by hand. And as everyone knows, when you copy something by hand, you can make mistakes deliberately or accidentally. And Burr worried that parts might be left out or omitted. So he wanted the original. Jefferson would only give a copy. And at that, he gave a copy with certain parts cut out. And those are portions that Jefferson thought would pertain to national security. Burr said, I want the original. I want a complete document. And he never got it. If we could analogize, this would be like Trump handing over his tax returns, but the line that says total income would just be, you know, blacked out. Like, you know, we don't want to put the bottom line because that would be too embarrassing. In the beginning of the process, before Marshall had issued any orders, Jefferson wrote a note saying he would voluntarily comply. How did it disintegrate from there? In the history of a republic, the political branches found a way to get along voluntarily. They said it's good for the country if we go along with process. But I think there's a big difference between voluntarily complying versus complying at the point of an order. The reason why is with a voluntary compliance, there's give and take. Marshall asks for X, Jefferson gives Y. Okay, it's not exactly what he wanted, but it's close enough. And both sides can feel like they, they worked it out. But when the court orders to do X and only X, then there's no give and take. There's no play in the joint. And that's far less desirable. There have been many clashes between the president and Congress before, right, where the Congress wants documents and the president doesn't want to give them. But historically, they've been able to work out some sort of middle arrangement. They've been able to figure out a deal. In recent years, that spirit of compromise has largely died. But what's novel about the New York District Attorney's case, Cyrus Vance, is that it wasn't a request from Congress. It was a request from a state prosecutor, which is novel. So even if the Burr trial provided some precedent that was in a federal court, Vance's case was in a state court. I do think that makes some difference. It didn't make a difference to the court, but I think there is a distinction there. Does the case also stand out because Chief Justice Roberts had to go all the way back to the 1800s to come up with this precedent? Well, I think Chief Justice Roberts went back to the 1800s to make it seem like he wasn't doing that much. Chief Justice Roberts, before he was on the court, was a lawyer, and he was a good one. And he was a brilliant writer. I think he's probably the best writer in the court today. He has such good writing skills. It's remarkable. But I think Roberts' greatest skill is to do a lot 
without making it seem like a lot of work, right? He reached a very important conclusion, but does it in a calm, nonchalant fashion, as if there's no big deal. What's the big deal? You know, we've been doing this all along. He says, look, I'm not doing anything new. I'm only doing what, what John Marshall did 200 years ago. So everything is normal. And I think what you have to recognize is that this was an expansion far beyond what Chief Justice Marshall did 200 years ago. And if you look at the history, Marshall is largely ignored, and that's not a strong footing to rely on. The Chief Justice offers what I call a sanitized version of history, and it's one that only tells the judiciary side of the story. It doesn't tell the executive side of the story. If we look at this clash, truly the executive prevailed. But this sort of fixation on John Marshall, what I call this obeisance, blinds the court to the fact that governance is more complicated. And you can't just look at John Marshall's one-sided account. You have to look at what happened after the fact, the actual clash, not the court's feckless order that was ignored. When Jefferson ignored Marshall's orders, Marshall did nothing to ensure compliance at that point? He just sort of dropped it? Well, there were a couple orders, but if I can grossly summarize, Jefferson was willing to give either a copy of the document, not the original. He was willing to give a redacted version of another document or have one of his subordinates go to the court. He was not willing to give the original, not willing to give the unredacted document, and not willing to physically go to Richmond to deliver it as Marshall requested. You know, you may say, oh, Josh, that's close enough. Well, generally, when a court says jump, you say how high, right? You don't get to negotiate. But Jefferson basically negotiated after the fact, which shows that you don't have this sort of strict compliance with judicial process, that there's some play in the joints when the president's involved. In other words, that whatever the standard is for regular folk, the president has a little bit more discretion because of his unique office. Roberts has said that he considers Marshall a model for a chief justice. Does he refer to him in many opinions? All the time. All <laughs> the time. It's an obsession. It's a sycophantism, if you will. Roberts often speaks of the great chief justice. He relied on Marshall in his famous Obamacare decision. He's relied on him in many other cases where he talks about restraint. It's just sort of veneration, this hero worship of a person. And, and I don't blame him. Marshall's a remarkable jurist. I don't want to minimize it. I mean, in this Burr trial, it lasted a couple months. There were hundreds of pages of opinion, 200 pages by hand with a quilt, right, by himself. He would just sit there all day in court, and he would write opinions all night. And at one point, he said, I'm sorry for errors. I haven't had a chance to read my work yet. He would just write in one draft. So, I mean, it's stunning the amount of work he did. But we should put Marshall in the proper context. He was a justice of the court. He issued a ruling on a case. The president wasn't very interested in following it. And, and those two sides of the story should inform these sorts of disputes over tax returns. But we only heard one side of the story. The narrow issue about the presidential subpoena is far more complicated than the court made it seem. I think in this battle between the separation of powers on paper, Marshall looked like he prevailed. But if you look at what happened, Jefferson won this one. Not even close. Thanks, Josh. That's Josh Blackman, a professor of constitutional law at the South Texas College of Law. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.